to Pro Se, Lafayette Sixties Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. It's a summer week, guys. It's yeah. a summer week, and we've got some, some, it's hot outside, and we've got some hot news right off the presses. I mean, uh, I love that, I, hot I, news. I mean, I mean, these are these are the themes, this, this is what you come here for. I mean, we're, we're synthesizing the weather and the value of the news. That's crazy stuff. <laughs> I am thrilled to report that Meatloaf has settled his copyright lawsuit. Oh, wow. I'm thrilled to hear it, too, because hopefully this is the last time we ever talk about that on Pro Se. Uh, we talked about it cool. years ago, right? Say, yeah, that was oh, one, yeah, that was one of the early ones. Yeah, Meatloaf was sued for stealing uh, I Would Do, do anything, anything for Love, love. But, I, but, I, but I Won't Do That. Of course, yes. Uh, yeah, he reached a settlement. He finalized the settlement today. It had been uh, sort of in the works for a while. But uh, I'm happy for our man Loaf. I'm happy to not have to hear that song on my very own podcast anymore. Well, I mean, let's not make any promises. I mean, we could just spring it on you sometime. Am I right, Kel? Add it in in post. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah, well, that's cool. Um, We we have other settlements to talk about uh, in a second. And just so people understand what's up with the show today, we had three pretty significant uh, things we wanted to talk about. So we're not going to have a guest. We're just going to... Bat around three big news stories ourselves today. No one would come on the show. That's just it's just us covering that up. Yeah, we got stood <laughs> up by our own by our own staffers in some cases. Very very sad to see. Just um, kidding. Uh, all right, let's get to to the pressing news, the yes. actual news. Um, first first up, I think I think it would be prudent to talk about the what appears to be the rising price of settling privacy claims. Uh, if you are uh, if you are a company who has misplaced or fumbled your your users' data. Fumbled. Yeah, right. You, you you just let it go. Um, you could be set back. You could be set back a pretty penny. Uh, this week we saw two companies um, pay quite a lot of money to settle um, claims relating to privacy breaches. That first you saw um, the credit reporting company Equifax. They handed over about seven hundred million dollars to resolve sort of a, a flood of legal claims from their twenty seventeen breach. And then even more significantly, just a, just a few days after that. Uh, Facebook, we're all familiar with Facebook, I think. Um, Facebook.com. Yes. Yep, yep, yep. No, no longer the Facebook.com. Yep, uh, right. Anyway, uh, handed over $5 billion to the Federal Trade Commission to settle just a, a, a string of, of, of data, data claims. These kind of uh, privacy issues are sort of, you know, they're everywhere these days. But what yeah. exactly happened with these two companies. I mean, everyone remembers there was that big Equifax breach. And yeah. Facebook just generally uh, is in... Is, Always looming in privacy concerns. Right. But yeah. what, what exactly happened? Yeah, we talked about both of these on the show before, I think. Um, but some, some time has passed. I mean, Equifax suffered like a, an old-fashioned data breach um, right. in 2017 that exposed the social, social security numbers and some other data for something like... 150 million people. Like, Half the country. The, yeah, yeah. The news there was the sheer scope of it. Seems um, fine. Yeah. Uh, as you would expect, there was just a, a, a wave of lawsuits and various government enforcement actions um, that came after that. And like I say, they paid $700 million to settle that this week. Um, Facebook, uh, the settlement, again, their $5 billion payment comes from a number of things. But the main one was this um, this scandal with the political consulting firm Cambridge Analytica. It's a Black Mirror uh, yeah. plot line. Yeah. Um, and this was, as we talked about it at the time, um, less of a um, old, old-fashioned old breach of data and more of like a design flaw of the Facebook model. Cam- right. Cambridge Analytica basically set up this app that was like a psychology testing app that you could take on Facebook 
And when you took it, there was, you know, there's sort of a perfunctory consent agreement. Uh, and you, uh, it basically harvests not only the data of the users who take the test, the test, but also all of the people who were like in your face, like all of your Facebook friends or people in your certain social circle. Which is extra it's an extra level of insidious with that the design of that. that right, because there's wasn't no just the person. There's no, there's no, there's no like. I mean, right. and it also wasn't just the person who consented to take that quiz yeah. online. It was also anyone connected to them. That's kind of crazy. Yeah. Really, anytime we're throwing the word harvest around when it comes to uh, <laughs> harvesting yeah. data, yeah. Uh, so, like we say, so they they've both paid a lot of money. Um, these are settlements, so these are you know things that are kind of. You know, don't whine to it. Always a very satisfying legal conclusion. But given their size and given the industries at play, there's a lot we can we can take from them. So for Equifax, the $700 million they paid is um, the largest scale sort of data breach settlement claim that has been paid in a U.S. court. Um, so it's historic in that regard. Um, basically over half that money goes into an actual settlement fund, which in the interest of service journalism, as I said at the top, you should just, there are various ways you can Google around to see if you yourself are eligible for, uh, uh, an Equifax payout. Um, a bunch of it then goes to, uh, the CFPB and a couple of the state regulators who were pursuing claims against them. Um, that sort of came in for a little bit of criticism because while $700 million, is certainly a lot of money. The issue with settlements like this, and we'll talk about it with Facebook as well, is the lack of sort of personal liability. The idea mm -hmm. of, you know, whatever. Like, they're a very successful company. $700 million is a lot of money. But the idea of, like, no no human beings are held accountable or sent to jail or, or anything like that for this. Um, also of note, just to, to put a sort of button on the Equifax thing, the FTC, which handed out the Facebook fine, uh, did not was not able to find um, Equifax because they have it. There's a so there's a provision of the law that requires a certain amount of leniency for first time uh, uh, offenders or first time you know victims of a data breach, um, which is something that uh, even a, a sitting commissioner said. You know, I'm just an FTC commissioner. I can't change the law, but I think this would be a good thing to maybe look at. <laughs> Uh, like yeah, we, I mean, with this giant data breach, well, yes, we, it doesn't matter quite as much. We understand the, the concept thing. of leniency for first-time, you know, incidences. But when you're talking about something of this scope, sure. you can understand how this makes people upset. I didn't know I wasn't allowed to do that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. Was I was I supposed to keep track of all the data all the time? <laughs> what? Uh, yes. Um, but the real news, um, I think, is Facebook uh, for a number of reasons. Um, to begin with, the very obvious. Like I said, they paid five billion. Which is uh, so much. a tremendous yeah. amount of money uh, for anybody to pay for any reason. Um, but beyond that, the settlement that uh, Facebook again struck with the with the FTC asks sort of commands a bunch of changes to the way that Facebook is supposed to handle things like this going forward. Um, and you see this a lot uh, in privacy uh, settlements, but it sort of it 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 requires Facebook to set up this independent executive level board that sort of strips away. The power, like Mark Zuckerberg, as it stands before, has sort of unilateral power over privacy policy decisions. And given how powerful that company is, like they, the 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 regulators here have decided, like this is something that needs to be yeah. a, little, a little more democratic within your own company. Um, there's lots of different stuff. There's like compliance officers who will be responsible for the company's pri uh, privacy programs. Um, you know, various certifications, third party audits. The works, stuff like that. Um, but even with all that stuff in place, there's still critics who come in for this stuff. Um, as I said before with Equifax, there were people who wanted to see Mark Zuckerberg 
like brought up, like personally liable for this. Yeah. And a big part of that is because, um, not to muddle the water here too much, but f- this is not the first time that the FTC has had an issue with Facebook. Yeah. They struck um, a consent decree in 2012. And all that is to sort of, the best way to think about that is sort of a big warning from the FTC. They said it imposed a lot of things like this. It was like, you need to be more mindful of the way that you carry out these sort of privacy decisions at your company. And it sort of called for audits. It called for a lot of the stuff that's in this settlement. And this Cambridge Analytica thing happened anyway, like just a couple of years later. Right. So it came in for um, a lot of heat uh, in that regard, but it is a substantial payment. And I think the thing that's really to take away is just, it, this is yet another front of the, 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 the battle, the war, I don't know how dramatic you want to be, of the way the government is interacting with these tech giants, mm-hmm. you know. Um, whether it's, I mean, there was like just an antitrust case laws, I mean, Facebook and Google and Amazon. There's, all, there's the discussion of all the, of um, Section 230, which immunizes them for liability yeah. for stuff that's said on their networks. And, yeah. You know, the, the whole idea of fairness and all that Definitely. stuff. Definitely. And privacy is just one part of this. The idea of like, you know, you have these... <laughs> These corporate behemoths who are so much more than companies at this point. These yeah. are, you know, these are institutions. Some would say they're pro- providing utilities. Whole other thing. Um, and this is just another front of that. This is a, this is a, these are a couple of massive penalties for Facebook in particular. Um, but I mean, I think we can very, very simply say that uh, the, pro- the the government's issues with this industry are only just beginning. I want to take us now from talking about the big issue of privacy concerns to another big plaguing issue in the country right now, and that's the opioid crisis. So keeping it real light in today's show. (laughs) Um, So what I want to talk about is that late last week, the Justice Department indicted a drug distributor and two of its executives for allegedly flooding rural towns with painkillers to basically profit off of that opioid epidemic. Yeah, it's a thing we've seen. We've seen sort of an uptick in these these criminal cases now being brought about the opioid epidemic after years of seeming inaction. Yeah, um, we definitely have. And I mean, this one um, also, I, I always I brought this up on the show a bunch. I'm from West Virginia, and this one has some ties to my home state. So it's, it's one I wanted to talk about. The company in question here is Ohio-based. It's called Miami Lucan. Its former president is a guy named Anthony Rattini and his former compliance officer, James Barclay. And all of them were accused in this indictment of conspiring to distribute controlled substances without a legitimate medical purpose. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's not that the drugs are controlled, but they were being used uh, illegally off off of their intended purpose. Right. So if the two men are convicted, they could face 20 years in prison. OK. Yeah. And this gets I mean, I was just talking about this with the Facebook thing. I mean, this is the, the, the opioid on the opioid front. They've been. A little more aggressive of late, sort of going after actual people and not just doing corporate fine. I mean, you'll still see the fines. But what exactly are what can we talk a little bit more about the about the claims? Sure. So here the company and these executives allegedly distributed millions of painkillers to doctors and pharmacies in rural towns in, in Appalachia. And they ignored signs that they were being illegally diverted. Mm-hmm. Um, so the sort of the way this played out, there's a couple of pharmacists in West Virginia that were also indicted. After they'd ordered millions of opioid pills, Um, an example from the indictment was that the distributor ignored what DOJ calls obvious signs of abuse. They distributed more than 2.3 million doses of oxycodone and 2.6 million doses of hydrocodone to a couple of pharmacies in West Virginia. Mm -hmm. Those are big numbers. But it's even worse when you realize where these pharmacies are. The pharmacies are located in towns that have roughly 1,400 residents. Oh, man. So it's just very clear that they weren't taking seriously um, 
suspicious activity. Yeah, definitely. Um, and there's even this suspicious order monitoring system that Miami Luke and the company had, and it flagged some of these orders. But the executives basically just ignored it. So they didn't do any due diligence. They didn't report it to authorities. None of that. Yeah. So uh, I think we sort of alluded to it. But, um, you know, I, I've i never heard of this company. and But it, this seems like a pretty – from sort of the news coverage I've read of it, it seems like it's a pretty big deal that this, this Yeah. Case. I think that it's really important to put in perspective why we're talking about this. So Miami Lucan is a little guy um, in this sort of bigger world of drug distributors. Yeah. They earned about $170 million annually from 2008 to 2015. That's not a small number, but it's less than 1% of the annual revenue generated by the three biggest drug distributors. Wow. So they're pretty pretty small fish in this pond. Um, but the reason we're talking about it is that our life sciences reporter, Jeff Overly, wrote a really good feature with a headline that I just want to read the headline. Everybody in the crosshairs as DOJ opioid blitz gets real. Yeah. So Jeff in that story runs down how this indictment suggests that the feds are ramping up criminal crackdowns, which is separate from what they've been doing in the past, which yeah. is years and years of civil enforcement yeah. that didn't really make a dent in the opioid epidemic. Well, yeah. Let's um, what give us a, give us a, uh, an idea of the scope here. What are they What yeah. are they pursuing in other districts? I mean, so, against what kind of companies? So back in April, the government charged a New York based distributor. That one's called Rochester Drug Co- Cooperative, and a pair of their former executives for basically similar crimes to what we're talking about here. Um, we've also talked on the podcast before about the Justice Department landing convictions of a couple of Insys Therapeutics execs. Yeah. Those are the ones that were selling the the fentanyl spray yeah. and um, basically orchestrating a series of kickbacks to doctors to prescribe more and more of that. Yeah, it was like a racketeering charge. Mm -hmm. So attorneys told Jeff that the DOJ is basically developing a playbook through these cases and that they're starting with these regional distributors. But what we know so far... Um, is that the central allegations are ones that could carry over into bigger fish. So those central allegations are all basically a failure to alert the government to these suspicious opioid orders that exceed what could be expected of any legitimate demand. Yeah, yeah. we've seen uh, civil litigation against some of the really big players, the really big opioid companies. But, I mean, is this... Are we trending toward criminal charges against some of these, the you know, the the biggest opioid suppliers? I think that it looks that way, and that's what attorneys were telling Law 360. So, and just to give some perspective on what's happened to the big fish in the past, uh, it's been fines and deals. So, uh, in 2017, McKesson, which is one of those big three drug distributors, yeah. agreed to pay 150 million dollars over allegations that it basically turned a blind blind eye to these sort of shady orders of opioids. And then all the way back in 2007, Purdue Pharma execs pled guilty, but only to misdemeanor marketing violations, mm, yeah. and it was for similar activities. So right. some observers have said that it's um, it's likely that with these regional things, the DOJ is uh, testing the water, seeing I mean, it looks like a dragnet. Go. I mean, it looks like and sort of how you begin yeah, a wider right. thing. I mean, just to a casual eye. And and I think that's exactly right. That this Many people are saying the scrutiny is long overdue, and DOJ is building their their sort of toolkit of what will work in pursuing stricter remedies, especially on this criminal side. So no one should be surprised if we see more and more criminal charges, even against those big companies. For our final story today, we're going to talk about patent law. No. Always my favorite. 
It's funny, we had a meeting, stop, immediately before we recorded the podcast where yes. we were dis- discussing patent law, and, and somehow it came up into like a like a, a deep, deep alley of patent law, yes. and everyone in the room looked like they were going to pass out. <laughs> Except for Ryan. No, uh, Ryan was, yo, he Ryan was, was fine. Who was yeah. in his element. Yeah, he was fine. And humoring us. But I mean, before you turn the show off, I assure you that this is not really a, 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 a substantive patent law case. That's right. Um, so it's a big case that's pending before the Supreme Court that is asking the justices to strike down this very unusual policy by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. That is, uh, that the USPTO, in certain types of cases that they litigate with people, has adopted a policy of demanding that the other side pay their attorney's fees no matter how the case turns out. If they win, if they lose, you have to pay all of our attorney's fees no matter what. That is a, a bold stance to take. It's it's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see how it well, plays I thought, out for him. You you wrote the story on this, and that's why you're talking about it. But I was when I when I just read like the the nut like the lead and nut graph of your thing, I was like, wait a minute. Surely it can't be that simple that like that that that's the that that's the policy you like pay for it all no matter what happens. It feels like it feels like Spinal Tap. Yeah, Shark Sandwich. Definitely, they can't write you, that. You, you can't print that. Um, but yeah. yeah, so a bunch of legal groups jumped into the case this week, uh, arguing that that this is a pretty radical and unprecedented thing that will shut off access to the courts for most people who can't afford right. to, to pay the legal fees of the USPTO. So it's a very very interesting case. So let's sort of lay the groundwork here. I mean, I know what you're talking about, but it's very specific why uh, they have this policy in place. Yeah, it's a, it's it's an please interesting, explain why. <laughs> it's an interesting one to unpack. Um, so starting sort of all the way back, if you apply for either a patent or a trademark at the USPTO and you're ultimately rejected for mm-hmm. whatever reason, you can obviously appeal that ruling to court. Um, you have two options for how to do so. One, you can file just a normal appeal the way that most you know, lawyers or people who even have a basic understanding of the law understand an appeal to be. Yeah. You take the ruling and you take it to a higher court and they review that ruling. Say, they, they messed this up, please change it. But yeah. there's an alternate route here, which is unique to, to uh, patents and trademarks, which is something called a de novo review, mm-hmm. which is you say, look, the USPTO screwed up so badly in figuring out whether I deserve this patent that I need to go to court and start a whole new case, basically. Yeah. Um, and say, I get to introduce new evidence, I get to make this case, and the judge will decide whether or not I should have gotten this. It, so this. Is, it, is it basically like reapplying for a patent, but this time in front of a judge? No, I mean, it's sort of it's sort of in between. I mean, okay. it's still, you, you are still reviewing the USPTO ruling, but it's... Um, it's you, you, you have get, a wider berth. You get of, to introduce new evidence. Right. Yes, and, yes. Yeah. Okay. So... Um, so that's the the process that we're concerned with today, this de novo review mm-hmm. process, which is one of the two ways that Congress decided that you can appeal in this situation. Um, but more specifically, we're worried about this obscure provision under the law that says if you choose that route, you have to pay, quote, all expenses that are incurred by the USPTO um, Regardless of the outcome of the case, it doesn't say it doesn't say you should pay if you lose. It says you pay all the expenses. Amazing. I, I, and as <laughs> usual, we're we're talking about hey, what does that two word phrase yeah, yeah. mean in this law? So yeah. for for more than a century, uh, USPTO viewed that in sort of the the what I think a lot of critics would say was the reasonable way, which is. It covers these smaller, more trivial things, printing fees, out-of-pocket travel expenses, uh, you know, uh, witness testimony fees, stuff stuff that that maxes out at a few thousand bucks. Mm -hmm. 
But in 2013, the agency had this uh, epiphany that the uh, provision <laughs> does not mean that. It means something else. Uh, it means that applicants who choose the de novo route must pay the prorated salaries of the attorneys at the USPTO who are working the case. In other words, the attorney's fees for yeah. the USPTO's uh, attorneys. It must be stressed that those are not trivial fees. Those are no. tens sure. of thousands of dollars in in uh, in legal bills. And again, no matter who wins the case. So you have a situation where USPTO is arguing if you choose one of the two routes that, that Congress said you can choose to appeal your case, there is just a surcharge that, that you have to pay all of our fees regardless of what happens do you still want to choose that? Yeah, right. Well, just- this just flies in the face of, I mean, I I think we're probably going to get into this anyway, but we exist under the American rule in yeah. the U.S., and that means that you're not supposed to really be able to do that. Exactly. So as Amber alluded to, and as all the folks who went to law school will know, that in unlike certain other countries, um, the U.S. legal system is a you-pay-for-yourself kind of system. There, yeah. are, there are obviously uh, policy Upsides and downsides to that. People say that we're a very litigious country uh, yeah. as a result of it, but that's the rule. It's a bedrock of our legal system that you pay for the case you bring. The only exceptions to that rule are in the case of really egregious, sanctionable behavior. Right. You know, mm-hmm. it's done as a punishment, or in certain types of cases where Congress wrote very specifically into the statute that you're suing under. This case, if someone wins, they can get their attorney's fees. Yeah. It's under copyright law. That's how it works. If you win, it says you have a the courts should consider giving you your yeah. attorney's fees. To illustrate how unusual this is, uh, there the there's a case involving the travel website Booking.com. Um, this was actually a trademark case, and they were refused the trademark registration on their name. USPTO said it was generic, mm-hmm. um, and. The company appealed. They filed this de novo appeal, and they ultimately won. They overturned the ruling, and the court said, no, you should be able to get a trademark registration on it. Doesn't matter. After that, they were ordered to pay $76,000 in attorney's fees after a case that they had just won against the agency. I just, mean— Well, it, I, I mean, I'm confused just at a very basic level about—because these are government attorneys. Like, they're they're collecting a they're collecting a check yep. anyway, right? Like, and so—but it's now—now now, now it's just like— you get it. You, the other party, get the prorated check, so the government doesn't have to pay the lawyers in that regard. Yeah, I mean that's and that's their that's the USPTO's argument is that that de novo and, and from a policy perspective, it sort of makes sense. I mean, de novo reviews are substantially more work for the yes. USPTO, and if everyone is filing these, then you know we have to. We're a self-funded agency. We have to hire yeah. more people. Yes, this is slowing down everything. Um, so you know if if. If you want to file this kind of case, you shoulder a little bit more money. Um, would be the U.S. the way the USPTO sort of defends itself. But the other way to look at this, I mean, when you talk about a big website, a big company like Booking.com, they could probably shoulder that burden of seventy six thousand dollars in fees. But what if you're a true little guy and you are trying to defend the trademark that you wanted to register? There are some people that are truly going to be priced out here. Right. If you're a small business and you want to register your trademark, or if you are a uh, you know you're a, star- a, a startup and you have this interesting patent that you yeah. want to, do, or you're an individual inventor and you have a sure. Patent. I mean, patents are are much more complicated in a lot of ways than trademark stuff. Obviously, just because it's um, you know it's it's all the technical aspects of it. Yeah. So if you're one of those people and the there's you want to introduce new evidence after you've been refused a patent 
And the, there's just this assumption that you're going to have to pay $60,000 mm-hmm. in, in legal fees. Even if you overcome the case, why wouldn't you then just take the other route? And, you know, there was really important evidence that you wanted to do or you wanted to file this de novo appeal that you should be able to file. But is that worth it for you? So it it, it, it starts to take into account the wealth of the person in yes. a way that seems sort of unusual in the U.S. court system. Yeah. So... We're in court now fighting over this. We have been for for quite a few years. Um, uh, two different circuits have ruled two different ways on it. Um, okay. The Fourth Circuit ruled, upheld it and said that it was okay. And um, the Federal Circuit struck it down, ruled that it violated this, the American rule that we were talking about before. So in March, the uh, Supreme Court agreed to take up the case mm-hmm. and settle the issue of the legality of this, this policy once and for all. Um, from you know, we talked a little bit about the legal just or the policy justifications before, yeah. but from a from a legal perspective, the USPTO is saying basically that like they're sort of doubling down. They're saying like this idea that you get we get them no matter what is actually the defense for it that it doesn't implicate the American rule because it's not a situation where yeah. we're asking losers to pay for cases. This is just a Everybody. separate surcharge that mm-hmm. has nothing to do with who prevailed in the case, so it doesn't yeah. even apply to that. But you know, as as we discussed, the the uh, many critics sort of view it as as a way that is is limiting access yeah. to the courtroom, which gets us sort of to to this week um, when we had a, a whole slew of different outside legal groups filing amicus briefs mm-hmm. in in favor of this this rule being struck down. Um, the American Bar Association filed one of them that that called the rule radical and unprecedented. The good quote. The doors of justice should be open to all, regardless of individual prosperity. But the PTO's interpretation would mean that applicants' wealth would determine their access to the pathway to justice provided by Congress. Those benefits would remain open to large corporations and affluent individuals able to shoulder the burden of paying for the government's lawyers. So, yeah. it it you know it's as we said at the very up top, it's uh, patent law is often um, sort of esoteric and. And often difficult to talk about in a context like this, but it's this is like this is a case that has much bigger um, themes than just yeah. Than it's just about the, the access you know, to justice, basically. Yeah. Exactly. So um, oral arguments are set for October, so it is one that we will be uh, watching closely. probably heard a million podcasts advertise job boards and job services and all sorts of different ways that you can find a job. But if you're a listener of Law 360's Pro Se, I got to guess that you're somehow involved in the in the legal industry. If that's so, we have an even better job board than any of those sort of generalist ones out there. That's right. And you can find it at jobs.law360.com. There you can find listings for any number of exciting uh, jobs for you in the legal career, different paths you can take. The, the world is at your feet, uh, the world of, of, of a career in the legal industry. You're already checking out our news stories. Just head over to jobs.law360.com to find the job of your dreams, associate all the way up to partner level. And also, if you're a hiring partner or you're in the HR arm of a law firm and you're looking to advertise your great job, you want to head over there too. We have a promo code for you if you want to list a job. It's 
pro say, and you'll get 25% off that listing. So again, that's jobs.law360.com. Head over and again, use the promo code pro say for 25% off. We like to end our show with something offbeat, and we have one of our favorites, Jimmy Hoover, on the line with us to talk about uh, an incident that happened to you, Jimmy. Yeah. Uh, yeah we're, we're, we're not done squeezing blood from the Jimmy Supreme Court stone right, that's right. now. This is a, a, a Supreme Court story of a different sort. Well, this was good, too, because you, uh, you you tweeted out some of this story, which, was, uh, which sort of caught our eye. But um, let's get into it. Yeah, sure. Um, well, uh, you know, it was one of those things where it happened, and I, I kind of debated whether or not to, to tweet about it, because it was just kind of like a fleeting moment, but I figured, you know, Supreme Court reporter, all my followers, like, are generally interested in that kind of stuff. Listen so they to might, you. They, they, they might eat it up. Meeting the demand of the people. <laughs> right, right. It wasn't for me. It was for you. Yeah. But so set, set the scene for us. What were, you, what were you up to when this all went down? Yeah, so it was uh, Sunday a couple of weeks ago, and uh, it was a pretty hot day, but we had been planning with some friends, my wife and I, to go kayaking in uh, in uh, the Potomac River uh, in uh, the, the boathouses in Georgetown. So, you know, I'm driving down there, and uh, it's uh, it's a pretty pretty busy Sunday under the, under the K Street Bridge, and, uh, you know, we're looking for parking, and parking's pretty tight, but we see this spot, and... Uh, you know, it, it's pretty small. I, I think I'm decent enough at parallel parking, so I line it up and I try and wiggle in there. But of course, I'm not good enough, so I kind of like swallow my pride and hand the keys to, to Megan, who nice. gets behind the wheel. I'm out on the sidewalk kind of making sure she's like getting in there. She's like inches from the bumper of the car behind us. Right. And I look up and I see these two guys walking toward us and I'm thinking, oh God, these are like the owners of the car behind us. This this is so embarrassing because we're like so close and, Uh you know, it doesn't even necessarily look like we're going to make it. You know what I mean? Like when you, you're not sure if you're (laughs) going to pull You're in media res. You're like trying to do it in front of them. Right, 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 right. And then I kind of take a closer look at the guy and I'm like, oh goodness that is justice neil gorsuch <laughs> i love i love the idea of you saying oh goodness out loud on the yeah. street i also just love that that's a real dc kind of story yeah, where 100%. yeah you could just neil gorsuch just coming back to his car well there's a there's a confluence of like uncomfortable circumstances like I get nervous like whenever anybody is watching me parallel park, even if they are not the owner of the car. Like, it, it, like if somebody just like I'm a decent parallel parker, but much like you, Jimmy, I also defer to my wife. Like if it if, if it calls for it, she's yeah, better at it yeah. than I. Well, I would also ask Jimmy, do you have the backup camera or the beeper? Oh, good, good question. We do have the backup camera. Oh, Although... that's helpful. It's 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 not as reliable as you'd think. I you know I live kind of like wedged back there, so it's like you know. We all live in New York, and I have I've been out of the car game for a while, and I drove a friend's car recently, and the the doodads in that thing are wild. <laughs> I think this yeah. all depends on age too, though, because I mean, obviously, I learned parallel park when right. those backup cameras didn't exist. So now, if I'm ever my car doesn't have one, but if I'm ever in a car that does, I am sort of like. Ugh. I'm not gonna look at yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm a good parallel parker. I need this. Well, wait. This. So yeah. So, so Jimmy. So so you you realize it's Gorsuch walking towards you. How did this resolve? So you know, I, I see it's Gorsuch, and he's with a friend. They just got done with some kind of run or something, and it looks like they're they're heading back to their car to like drop something off in it. Um, and I'm just kind of like. I th- I can't even remember. I was like, this is so bizarre. I really hope we don't hit 
Justice Gorsuch's just car and have to like swap insurance because that would make for an interesting Honestly, Law 360 that, story. Yeah. You know what? Uh, I, I have a, a moment to interject here. In the years back when I lived in D.C., I had a friend that I worked with who shows up late to work one day and she's like, I was in a minor fender bender. Um, but she seemed excited about being in a minor accident. And I was like, what is going on with you? And she was like, well... I was hit. It's not major. Everything's fine. You know, the car doesn't have a ton of damage by Justice Scalia. And Justice Scalia <laughs> oh, had to oh, get geez. out of his car well, this is... and swap the insurance wow. with her. Amber. And so she actually was kind of excited that she'd sure, been hit yeah, by yeah, Justice yeah. Scalia. So, wow. I mean, did you, I mean, were you able to get the spot or did you just like, or did you just cut bait and move on at some point? So, 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 the, so the friend chimes in and says, kind of breaks the ice. It was one of those kind of awkward moments where you're like, yeah, that's your car. This is ours. We're yeah. like, you know, you're usually not supposed to be around for this moment. You're just supposed to, like, find the car in front of you, like, <laughs> annoyingly you close to your own. Could you tell but, if it was uh, Gorsuch's car or the other guy's car? I, you know, I think it was his. I didn't, like, okay. I, I, I believe yeah. he went for the I believe he went for the driver's seat when, right. he, opened okay. the, when he opened the car. Um, so, so his friend chimes up, breaks the ice, and says, uh, Great, great city car there. <laughs> yes, nice. I don't know, kind of like whatever came to mind. And so we have a little Honda Fit, which is great, you know, if you can parallel park it, which I can't, and obviously Megan is better at. But, um, yeah, so she's kind of wiggling in there, and then Gorsuch, like, turns, and he says the only thing that he says to us, which is, uh, good luck, and kind of shoots out a, a thumbs up to Megan, who's, like, kind of petrified. And uh, they are, they're off to whatever, and then afterwards, we're going to meet up t- with our with our, with our our friends at the at the boathouse, and, uh, and Megan was like, those guys were so nice. And I was like, do you know who that was? Oh, she didn't even know. <laughs> I was going to ask you, yeah. What? No, she did. She was like, was that Justice Gorsuch? Because I guess I, like, talk about the Supreme Court too much, so, like, she, I don't know, I don't want to give myself all the credit, but uh, she knew. She knew. And, nice. you know. Um, yeah. So that was honestly that was a real goal. a real situation of judicial restraint there. Yeah, uh, I, I just say. really hope to walk that away. someday um, Gorsuch from the bench looks over to that side of the room in the Supreme Court chambers where the press sits and just you know, good luck. Right. Just, like, yeah. just like that moment. Good luck parsing yeah, my arguments, parsing my opinions and my <laughs> my questions. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Uh, I yeah. love that that brush with the Supreme Court when you weren't expecting it, Jimmy. Thanks for telling us the story. Hey, anytime. Well, I guess the next time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That'll wrap us up for this week. Thanks for being with me, Bill. See you again next week, guys. And Alex. Thanks. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our contributing reporters, Jeff Overly, Allison Grandy, Ben Kochman, and Jimmy Hoover. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to know more about anything we've talked about today, check out our website, law360.com slash podcast. You can subscribe to our show wherever you find podcasts. And if you like it, please leave us a review. Thanks, and join us again next week.